Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In spring 1931, Li Tong met Magnus Hirschfeld when the latter was giving a public lecture in Shanghai. Lee was a medical student with a deep and vested interest in the exciting new field of sexology. Hirschfeld was an internationally recognized sexologist from Germany who'd taken himself on a world speaking tour to escape some drama going on back home. At 24, Lee had his whole life ahead of him. At 63, Hirschfeld was afraid of death and the end of his legacy. The two were an unlikely pair. But from their first meeting, Hirschfeld saw a student who would never betray him, and Lee saw a mentor who could launch his career as a sexologist. According to Hirschfeld, Lee gave himself to the older man and promised to look after him and protect him on the remainder of the world tour. Lee's assorted unpublished writings don't include a reflection on this alleged moment, but he did join Hirschfeld on the tour and served as secretary, friend, travel agent, and eventually lover to the doctor. They were close and mostly together until Hirschfeld's death in 1935. When Lee's father gave his son permission to leave medical school and join Hirschfeld's journey, he imagined that under Hirschfeld's mentorship, Lee would become the Hirschfeld of China. The meeting and entangling of Lee and Hirschfeld is significant in the history of sexology and gay rights. Whether you know it or not, Hirschfeld's work and ideas would go on to shape modern ideas about homosexuality in clear and often problematic ways. As historian Lori Marhofer notes, quote, if you think homosexuality is an inborn quality that cannot be changed and has a biological root but is not an illness, and if you think gay people are a quote-unquote sexual minority who are born that way and deserve legal protections just as racial minorities do, you owe those ideas to Hirschfeld and a handful of others. Other scholars and philosophers and same-sex desiring people made similar arguments before and at the same time as Magnus Hirschfeld, but he made them popular and part of the public lexicon. His work shaped the way people talked about sexuality for decades after his death. 
the white European and male centricness of sexology and gay rights movements came as a result of Hirschfeld's early work that assumed a white cis male body to be the standard around which rights needed to be procured and sexuality needed to be understood. But it didn't need to be that way. As Marhofer argues in their book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, the relationship that blossomed between Lee and Hirschfeld fundamentally reshaped the way that Hirschfeld thought about race, empire, and sex. If, as he and Lee intended, Lee had taken up Hirschfeld's mantle and become a leader in European and Chinese sexology after Hirschfeld's death, one could imagine quite a different trajectory for how folks conceptualized and advocated for gay rights. If Adolf Hitler and the NSDAP hadn't destroyed the Institute for Sex Research uh, following their electoral takeover of Germany, if Hirschfeld had lived longer, if Hirschfeld had agreed to go with Lee to the United States in 1934 so that Lee could finish his medical degree and they could all be safe from the Nazis, there were so many crossroads, so many decisions that individuals made that shaped the possible outcomes for the next set of choices. Things could have been so different. And so to examine Lee and Hirschfeld's story is to grapple with the contingency of history. Individual choices matter, and outcomes are the result of the confluence of events, disasters, and decisions. As historians Thomas Andrews and Flannery Burke argued, the world is a magnificently interconnected place. Change a single prior condition, and any historical outcome could have turned out differently. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Carl, Iris, Lauren, Edward, Colin, Susan, Jesse, Denise, Maria, Karen, and Lisa. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writing of historians and other scholars. Today's episode in particular is basically a podcastification of Lori Marhofer's wonderful book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights. I picked their book to assign in one of my classes this semester, and when I read the introduction, I knew I had to make it, and at least one of their arguments, the focus of this episode. It's also extremely readable, so I recommend you just go pick up a copy. I've really only scratched the surface of their very smart and deeply researched arguments for racism and making of gay rights. There's plenty more to learn. I'm also indebted to the works of Heike Bauer and Howard Chung, whose works on Hirschfeld and Chinese sexuality and sexology, respectively, added important context to this episode. And since we're talking a lot today about gay rights in Germany, I want to make sure to just point y'all in the direction of our friend Jake Newsom's book, Pink Triangle Legacies. It's a must read. And as, of course, I've read it. So it's in the back of my mind whenever I'm writing about Germany. To understand how and why things could have been different, we first need to talk about how and why they weren't. Magnus Hirschfeld developed his scientific defense of homosexuality during a broader international movement to study sex and sexuality. 
In Germany, psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebing published Psychopathia Sexualis in 1886, a work that categorized the disordered mind of sexual deviance. Karl Ulrichs, a lawyer who advocated for the decriminalization of sex between men, theorized earlier in the 19th century that same-sex desire was driven by an internal gender inversion. He referred to these individuals as earnings, but his ideas were marginalized and dismissed after he self-identified as an earning. While earlier editions of Psychopathia Sexualis by Kraft Ebing were damning for queer individuals, Kraft Ebing revised each edition based on feedback from readers who'd identified with the disordered sexualities that he described. These individuals played a role in reshaping Kraft Ebing's ideas about sexuality. Undoubtedly, Ulrichs was one of the people who urged Kraft Ebing to reconsider how earnings could be treated under the law. After Ulrich's death in Italy, where he lived in exile as his career was ruined after coming out as an earning, Croft Ebing began to argue that the sexual inverts, i.e. earnings, did not deserve imprisonment for a mental illness they could not control. Magnus Hirschfeld positioned his own scientific research on homosexuality in dialogue with these German thinkers and their evolving perspectives. Magnus Hirschfeld went to medical school between 1887 and 1893 at Berlin University. His father and two older brothers were doctors, and he followed in their footsteps. Instruction at the university included almost no discussion of sexuality. Maybe he obtained a copy of Psychopathia Sexualis as a student, but it's just as likely that he didn't know where to look for that kind of literature. When he was older and reflected on those years of training, one event seared itself into Hirschfeld's brain. He attended an evening lecture from Emanuel Mendel, who was one of the most popular psychiatrists in Berlin at the time. Mendel paraded three patients before a packed lecture hall, a pederast, a child molester, and an exhibitionist, and described their sexual deviancy as stemming from mental illness and disorder. As a young man with a sexual desire for other men, the lecture probably felt particularly painful and personal for Hirschfeld. Here, a great psychiatrist was comparing men like himself to men who preyed on children and men who flashed their genitals at grannies in the park. Hirschfeld and others obviously felt that these things were not like the other, and he would quickly dedicate his life to challenging that line of thinking and redirecting the nature and results of scientific sexual inquiry. And of course, it was personal. And I think this is actually a really important thing to understand about the hows and whys of this story. Hirschfeld cared most deeply about debunking and advocating for the sexuality that he himself most represented, although he was never out. That would have been like uh, Ulrich's damning to his career. But for example, when he advocated for the decriminalization of homosexuality in Germany, he advocated for a particular kind of homosexuality. He wanted men to have discreet, unobtrusive sexual relationships to conform, in effect, to a kind of homosexual respectability and invisibility that aligned with his class, morality, and racial beliefs. He wrote on a wide range of sexuality topics and collected all kinds of artifacts for his Institute for Sex Research, but the foundation of his interests and motivations was certainly personal. Hirschfeld published his first piece on same-sex desire in 1896, a 35-page pamphlet titled Sappho and Socrates, 
or how can we explain the love of men or women for persons of the same sex? Marhofer suggests that Hirschfeld was likely developing his response to contemporary categorization and description of same-sex desire while he was a student. But Sappho and Socrates was spurred by the 1895 trial and conviction of Oscar Wilde for, quote, crimes of gross indecency. Havelock Ellis and J.A. Simmons published the first German edition of their book, Sexual Inversion, in 1896, also in response to the Wilde trials. Hirschfeld, Ellis, and Simmons all had similar ideas about sexuality that may have developed independently, but they were certainly also informed by an early discourse on sexuality, selfhood, and desire. According to Marhofer, Hirschfeld argued explicitly and firmly, quote, same-sex desire was not a mental illness. It was caused by an inborn biological condition. That condition was not a disease. Indeed, it fit beautifully within the broader system of human sexuality. Same-sex loving people were therefore an unjustly oppressed group. Europeans, Europeans used to burn witches and heretics. That had been a cruel violation of scientific rationality and the rights of people. So, in the same way, were convictions for sodomy, end quote. So by grounding his theory in convincing scientific language and data, Hirschfeld garnered legitimacy, even as he was breaking with the broader medical community, which insisted that same-sex desire was a pathological deviation. According to Laurie Marhafer, Sappho and Socrates was important for two reasons. First, it launched Hirschfeld's career. While his theories are what garnered him attention, Hirschfeld's fame would in turn amplify the message of a class of innate, non-pathological, biological, same-sex desiring people around the world and shape gay rights movements for the entirety of the 20th century. Second, the content of the pamphlet was significant. Most of his theory was similar to other ideas in circulation at the time, but he was the first to argue that science proved there was a small minority of people who had a biological condition they were born with that made them sexually attracted to the same sex. He was the first to assert that homosexuality was non-pathological, not a psychosis, but simply a natural biological variation in humanity. What nature had done, Hirschfeld wrote in the 1902 reprint of Sappho and Socrates was, quote, created a class of people that she did not intend for physical reproduction, and, end quote. And by 1902, he thought that idea had spread very far. In truth, Hirschfeld's ideas about homosexuality being biological and homosexuals being a distinct class of people and thus a sexual minority were fringe during his lifetime. But by the 1950s, his ideas were mainstreamed and shaped the gay rights movement around the world. Though Sappho and Socrates was full of theoretical holes, it was also chock full of graphs and data, making it scientifically grounded and giving it staying power. So significantly, at a time when others were arguing that same-sex desire was a mental illness or a bad thing, Hirschfeld pushed back and added a different way of thinking into the mainstream. He resisted the dominant narrative around homosexuality, and his resistance was successful. That's why, Marhofer argues, he had the power to change the narrative again. At the end of his life, his theories and thinking changed again, thanks in large part to Lee's influence. If the ifs were realized, the modern gay rights movement could have looked very different. 
1897, Hirschfeld gathered three other men in his apartment in Berlin to found the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, with its goal the humane and scientific reform of sodomy laws. Between the four of them, they had a doctor, a lawyer, a publisher, and a former colonial official, which, of course, sounds like the start of a bad joke. But their talents and connections were essential to the work that the committee would do over the next 30-plus years. For example, Hirschfeld needed empire. He collected stories about same-sex desire around the world through colonial networks, with statistics and data points contributed by the colonial officials of Germany and other European empires. Hirschfeld's idea that the sexual type conquers the racial type, that sexuality was identical across racial differences, relied on the presumption that, quote, Chinese men and white European men were quite different in other respects, end quote. That premise that, quote, that homosexuality existed independent of environment and in an identical form, even across racial differences, end quote, would become the crux of Herschel's scientific defense of homosexuality. For most of his life, he was unable or unwilling to see the effects of empire on the people he studied. As a young man, Hirschfeld could not see empire as anything but a good thing for his research, for the opportunities it seemed to afford queer men. Marhofer suggests that a disproportionate number of colonial officials were queer men and women who saw colonies as spaces of sexual freedom. Until he traveled the world with Lee, he didn't seem to really grasp the effect of colonialism on the colonized. Instead, Hirschfeld's focus was on conditions at home. Together, the four men of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee put together a petition to abolish the sodomy law. They got the petition signed by Kraft Ebbing, and then August Bebel, who was leader of the Social Democratic Party and an old-school chum of Hirschfeld's. Bebel made a speech in support of the abolition. Though Bebel had his own political reasons for supporting the petition, his support legitimized their movement. Hirschfeld continued to do the work to legitimize their emancipationist movement with scientific evidence. Significantly, Hirschfeld carefully detached homosexuality from culture. He wrote that, quote, though societies respond differently to homosexuality, the sameness of the form in which homosexuality manifests itself and the sameness of homosexual life from the most primitive to the most cultured peoples among all races and classes is so extraordinarily pronounced that it is completely impossible that homosexuality is caused by anything but a natural law that is deeply rooted in humanity. Men like Ulrichs and Hirschfeld gathered evidence of same-sex desire from around the world to demonstrate that they were not degenerate or decadent. Building on Hirschfeld's work, a German homosexual emancipationist magazine published an article in 1920 challenging the idea that same-sex desire was a result of over-civilization by pointing out that same-sex orientation exists in all times, among all people, without exception. Australian Aborigines, Indian tribes, African and American Negroes, Mongolians and Malaysians, Turks and Eskimos, end quote. But Hirschfeld's theories were not widely accepted throughout the 19th century. Europeans generally associated same-sex desire with primitivity and uncivilization until the mid-19th century. At the turn of the 20th century, same-sex desire was associated with decadence and the aristocracy, quite the opposite. In Britain, this was exemplified in the Cleveland Street scandal. 
1889, the London Metropolitan Police discovered that there had been a male brothel at 19 Cleveland Street, where telegraph boys, usually teens who made money running telegraph messages around the city, sold sex to elite British gentlemen. Though the Victorian government did its best to cover it all up, newspapers got wind of the scandal and wrote about it as if everyone knew that decadence, wealth, and elitism was to blame for the homosexual corruption of youths. And though the connections between decadence and decline and homosexuality were most clearly articulated in the early 20th century, we can certainly also see similar tropes surrounding things like the French Revolution in 1789 and even earlier Enlightenment critiques of aristocracies and monarchies. White European homosexual emancipationists also believed that, quote-unquote, less civilized places were more open to same-sex sex and transness. Most eman emancipationists didn't circulate that perspective because they ran the risk of reassociating homosexuality with uncivilization, and that was counterproductive to their political goals. Hirschfeld, conversely, asserted that homosexuality and transvestitism were equally distributed across the globe, and that local populations merely reacted differently to it, and thus forced folks into hiding or suicide. In The Homosexuality of Men and Women, Hirschfeld's magnum opus, he describes three phases of local response to homosexuality. In stage one, the primitive, quote, naively tolerated homosexuality and even made use of it. Homosexuality might have a religious function for priests or magicians or pedagogic functions, as in ancient Greece. In the second phase, the heterosexual majority criminalize same-sex sex because they fear its effect on masculinity. And then in the third phase, which Hirschfeld doesn't really elaborate on, the non-superstitious tolerance of homosexuality would return. But many also inserted themselves into colonial contexts to take advantage of what they saw as more permissive primitive peoples. As Marhoffer points out, these white European authors presumed that though readers of their newspapers and sexological treatises might have differing opinions about homosexuality and its origins, both authors and readers would agree that the listed peoples were uncivilized, right? The, ab the Aborigines and the Native Americans and all these folks. And that the author and presumably readers were civilized because they're reading these sexological texts and the newspapers. In many ways, Hirschfeld shared those assumptions about who was civilized and uncivilized, even if he didn't couch his language in homosexuality as tied to one or the other, because he's saying that everybody is doing it. While Hirschfeld resisted the dominant ways of thinking about same-sex desire from a very early stage in his career, it took decades for him to question his assumptions about empire and race. He grew up in an era where Orientalism, homoeroticism, and North Africa were woven together in the German and European imagination. There were tons of German and European stories about love and sex in the exotic Near East and Southern Mediterranean. The literature was geared mostly towards queer white men, but not only. There was, for example, a 1932 Berlin lesbian magazine that leaned into the Orientalist homoerotic tropes with a story about a woman finding herself and a lover in Morocco. In fiction, colonial spaces were where white European women and men could have sexy affairs with beautiful brown women and men, but then return to their lives, and where trans women could find themselves in the permissive wilds of India. Edward Said writes 
that to 19th and 20th century Europeans, quote, the Orient was a place where one could look for sexual experience unobtainable in Europe, end quote. In reality, queer men availed themselves of the flesh in the colonies. Roger Casement was an agent of empire who took advantage of the sexual economies and cruising cultures wherever he was sent by the British Foreign Office. He did so without any notions that what he was doing was wrong. Later in life, he became an ardent anti-colonialist, in part because of the horrors he saw Europeans inflict on the colonized, and in part because of his Irish nationalist politics. But even then, he didn't necessarily reflect on the problematics of his own cruising habits. He didn't question the acceptability of using his colonizer positionality to exploit the economic need of men in the countries he visited. For Casement, as for Hirschfeld, there were often disconnects between the personal practice and the theoretical philosophical. The men who gave Hirschfeld his evidence of universal homosexuality were men like Roger Casement, middle class and elite Europeans with social, economic, or political mobility who ultimately believed in the European racial pseudosciences and imperial hierarchies that facilitated their access to sex around the world. As Marhofer argues, quote, it was power that made it possible for the governor of a colony to oblige a colonized man who worked for him to have sex, end quote. Hirschfeld was happy to take the evidence without critical examination of how and why that evidence came into his possession. As Heike Bauer puts it, though he shared a, quote, distaste for the imperial project with other leftists, he was largely oblivious to the violence and injustice of empire. That is, until he traveled the world with Li Tong and witnessed firsthand the experience of imperialism and racism. Hirschfeld orchestrated his world tour in 1930 after he had a major falling out with his colleagues at the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. The three men he'd assembled to co-found the committee were long gone and replaced by younger scientists, including one whom Hirschfeld believed would be his intellectual successor. That man, who was also one of Hirschfeld's lovers, betrayed him, and the committee leadership arrested control of the organization from Hirschfeld. With the national unrest and suffering caused by the Great Depression and the growing popularity of the NSDAP, and a rise in anti-Semitism, Hirschfeld wrote to Harry Benjamin. Benjamin, a famous doctor who became known for his work with trans patients like Christine Jorgensen, arranged for Hirschfeld to give a talk for a medical society in the United States. Hirschfeld then used honorariums to fund an extended travel itinerary, giving talks literally all over the world. He got to Shanghai in 1931, and that's where he met Lee. Though Hirschfeld prided himself on being anti-racist, his idea of anti-racism was actually quite narrow. He purported to oppose scientific racism in the sense of ranking the races over one another. He did still believe that there were biologically determined races of humanity and that traits and dispositions and physicality were inborn differences determined by one's race. Though he sometimes questioned the rigid racial categories of the scientific community, he put quite a lot of stock into the theoretical undergirdings of those frameworks. Hirschfeld sought, for example, a successor in China because he believed that loyalty was a racial trait of Chinese people. In October 1931, from India, he wrote in his journal, quote, 
One of the greatest gains of my trip was Tao Li, a young Chinese from a distinguished house who had accompanied me for five months. His noble character, his intelligence, his stalwart loyalty and devotedness made the journey far easier for me. At his father's request, he will study medicine and sexology in Germany. I think in him I have found the long-sought student whom I can mold in my own image. Hirschfeld was in search of a successor who would also be a lover. All his previous successors, including the young man who betrayed him and kicked him out of the committee, had been lovers. According to Marhofer, Hirschfeld correlated trustworthiness with physical intimacy. Back in Germany in 1929, Hirschfeld had been betrayed by his student-slash-lover Richard Linzer. Linzer turned the other members of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee against Hirschfeld, and they forced him out. Hirschfeld was deeply disturbed by the development. In the months-long legal and personal battle, he waged in trying to keep hold of the organization. In his lifetime, he'd found many long-sought students to potentially be his successor, only to be disappointed. Hirschfeld seemed to hope and believe that Lee would be the one to carry on his work. Hirschfeld pushed back against some of the other dominant racial beliefs that Europeans held about Chinese men, that they were effeminate or less masculine and thus more homosexual. But he still believed that each race had specific traits and that loyalty was a racial trait of the Chinese. After the betrayal of his German protege, Hirschfeld wanted a racially proscribed fealty from his next protege. In Shanghai, Lee agreed to become Hirschfeld's traveling companion, student, and effectively secretary. From Hirschfeld's writing, Marhofer shows that the older man was quite infatuated with the younger man from very early on. Lee was very good-looking, smart, and suave. Because he'd been educated in European-style schools and often wore smart Western-style clothing, Hirschfeld considered him cultured and a worthy potential protege. And though Lee was early in his own study of medicine, he had plenty to teach Magnus Hirschfeld. As historian Howard Chang has demonstrated, Chinese sexology and medical study of sex and sexuality had a long history. Li Shizhen, a physician from the 16th century of the Common Era, authored Binkao Guangmu, which posited a spectrum of human reproductive anomalies with five non-males and five non-females. That text was, and continues to be, one of the most cited Chinese medical texts. Though the language of biological sex only entered the Chinese lexicon in the 20th century, there were strong precedents that would have shaped Li's early medical training. As a field, sexology had been on the rise in China since the 1920s, emerging both from Chinese intellectual discourses and the translation and engagement with European texts. Hirschfeld's reputation preceded him in China, which is undoubtedly why Li's father agreed to let the young man travel with Hirschfeld. As you'll recall from the start of the episode, Li's father hoped that Li would become the Hirschfeld of China. Li's family was quite wealthy. He didn't necessarily need Hirschfeld to pursue medicine or become a sexologist. He could have achieved all of that in China. But he wanted to study in Europe and he wanted to learn from Hirschfeld. Perhaps, Marhofer posits, Lee was even attracted to Hirschfeld from the jump. The older man was a little stout and perpetually rumpled, but he was charming, charismatic, and funny. The pictures of the two of them together suggest that they enjoyed each other's company, shared an intimacy that was not uncomfortable or forced, and that Lee wanted to be there. 
though Lee never really wrote about his feelings for Hirschfeld or their time together. He clearly felt a deep affection for the man. When Hirschfeld's health was failing him in the early 1930s, after their world tour ended, Lee wanted to move to America to finish medical school. He offered to pay to move both Hirschfeld and one of Hirschfeld's other boyfriends to America with him. When Hirschfeld felt too unwell to travel, however, Lee chose to stay in Europe and try to finish his way through school there. He refused to leave Hirschfeld behind. Hirschfeld wrote often about Chinese students who shaped his thoughts and revised thoughts on various issues, including imperialism, race, and homosexuality. It seems quite clear that these alleged Chinese students were actually just Lee, with whom he shared train cars and ship cabins for the duration of the world tour. When Lee was refused entry at white-only clubs and restaurants or denied entry into the Philippines because of his race, Hirschfeld was forced to see the effects of imperialism firsthand. He'd already begun to develop anti-colonial ideas after World War I, but it was time spent with Lee that gave Hirschfeld a new perspective. He hadn't been critical of empire when writing Sappho and Socrates, or the homosexuality of men and women, or for most of his career. He had used empire to collect the data that he needed to support his emancipatory claims for same-sex desiring people. But sometime in the 1920s, he began to reformulate his ideas about liberation as something in line with anti-colonial sentiments. He framed homosexuals as a sexual minority, like an ethnic or religious minority, in need of protection from the hostile or unconcerned majority. By the time he was in India in 1931, his perspective on imperialism, be it German, British, or other, had shifted dramatically. Hirschfeld and his contemporaries likened the homosexual experience to that of Jews and witches, unjustly persecuted groups of people with clearly defined identifying characteristics. In the post-World War I period, invigorated by international debates about nation-based self-determination, homosexual emancipation analogies turned more frequently toward race, ethnicity, and nation. In Hirschfeld's and others' minds, homosexuals were a people— Hirschfeld developed journalist Kurt Hiller's concept about homosexuals as representing a sexual minority. Americans adopted that language in conceptualization of the oppression of same-sex desiring people in the post-World War II homophile movement. Hiller was one of Hirschfeld's colleagues at the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, who spoke often between 1910 and the 1930s on the sodomy laws across Europe. Hirschfeld, Hiller, and other users of the sexual minority analogy increasingly compared sexuality to race. In a speech to the World League for Sexual Reform in 1928, Hiller said that, quote, people were different, not only with respect to racial, somatic, and characterological aspects, but also with respect to sexual aspects. There were differences in skin color, eye color, hair color, in skull form, face, and body shape in language, style, taste, temperament, talent, moral character, and moreover, also in the direction of the drive for love, end quote. Hiller and other members of the German Scientific Humanitarian Committee accepted race as fact. If they could accept that race was innate, or, in Hirschfeld's words, biological, then they could assert that homosexuality was as well. 
In its earliest iteration, Hirschfeld's ideas were limited to white folks. But by 1931, Hirschfeld agreed that India, China, Egypt, and the Philippines deserved their independence too. Marhoffer suggests that Hirschfeld's shift in thinking was likely due to Lee's presence in his life. Hirschfeld's anti-colonial ideas came down to three main critiques. First, he believed that empire was unjust oppression. Second, imperialism would cause global war as people fought to free themselves from imperialism. And third, imperialism and empire were unnatural, just as repressive laws governing sexuality were unnatural. Both disrupted the natural order. But he framed his anti-colonial ideas in racist tropes, treatises, and stereotypes. He argued, for example, that white Europeans did not belong in the tropics as colonizers because their white bodies were not suited to the heat and humidity. Hirschfeld was like his contemporaries in this way. Kant, Canadian officials, and various other eugenicists repeated the tropes about which races belonged in which climates. So then Hirschfeld's transformation, flawed though it was, to an anti-colonial outlook it all came later in his life. As Marhoffer points out, British homosexual emancipationist Edward Carpenter had made the same, slightly less flawed, arguments about toxic hypermasculinity causing both the oppression of homosexuals and the oppression of imperialism decades earlier. And Hirschfeld had certainly read Carpenter's work. And yet it wasn't until 1931 in the publication of World Journey, which chronicles his travels from Germany to the U.S. to East and South Asia to the Middle East and then back to Europe. And it's in World Journey that Hirschfeld articulated these ideas in his own writing. Marhofer rightly asks why that moment, what changed? On his world tour, he bore witness to the violence and suffering European imperialism caused among the Indians in Hong Kong and elsewhere. But he'd seen suffering before when he traveled to the United States and Morocco as a younger man and was unmoved. Marhofer argues that it was China and his connection to Lee that changed his mind. A month after meeting Lee and traveling throughout China with the younger man, Hirschfeld articulated for the first time the intersection of anti-imperialism and homosexual liberation. After telling a Chinese reporter, I hope soon the Chinese people will run their own country without foreign interference, Hirschfeld went on to say, I hope that in adopting modern knowledge to the needs of the people, the Chinese leaders will not make the mistake that has been made in other countries of placing too many prohibitions and inhibitions upon the natural impulse of the people. Where too many laws exist to make people conform to a mold, the people become nervous. They cannot be themselves and their natures rebel. The result is an undermining of their health and happiness. I can sum up my meeting in one sentence. Do not legislate too much on how people shall think, what they shall not know, and what they should not do. End quote. Though subtle here, this was the first time that Marhofer could find that Hirschfeld voiced his fairly new anti-colonial ideas in the same discussion as the need for sexual political freedom. He'd speak more clearly and openly in his summation of the world tour, his book World Journey, but here, significantly, after a month in Lee's intimate company, he was forging these connections out loud. 
though he never attributed those ideas to Lee directly, and Lee never wrote about empire in his own unpublished writings, Marhofer logically suggests that when Hirschfeld references those Chinese students in his writing, again, he's referring to Lee. At the end of his life, Hirschfeld's intellectual journey was pushing towards a coalitional politics, the intersections of homosexual emancipation, anti-racism, and anti-colonialism. But as Marhofer demonstrates, the legacy of Hirschfeld's work was not coalitional at all. Instead, homosexual emancipation preserved a connection to Hirschfeld's earlier way of thinking. The gay rights movements of the 1950s and 60s foregrounded the needs and faces of white cis men, and even though some gay rights activists like Paul Kunstler, Franklin Kameny, and Jack Nichols, all of the Mattachine Society Washington, they also fought for black civil rights in the U.S., for the most part, it's that white cis man that is at the center of the homophile movement. But for the most part, most organizations that advocated for gay rights were not intersectional, were, according to historian Ken Peacock, downright racist and exclusionary. And Marhofer puts it very bluntly, quote, erasure of queer people of color troubled queer activism across the 20th century in Berlin and elsewhere. To take just one example, in the 1960s in the majority black city of Washington, D.C., a small and almost entirely white gay rights organization sincerely condemned anti-black racism. At the same time, it deployed the analogy between the sexual minority and racial minorities, and at times claiming, just like Hiller did, that the sexual minority had it worse than African Americans. Kent Peacock writes that those statements were inevitably read to mean that the two groups were entirely separate, that blacks could not be part of the homosexual community, and that homosexuals could not be black. The gay rights group remained overwhelmingly white, the assumed subject of its politics stayed white, too. Queer Black people in D.C. had to form their own organizations. Robert Tolman, who has a far less pessimistic reading of all this than I do, Marhofer, argues that queer movements built upon the success of anti-racist movements. Building upon can, however, be narrated as a parasitic relationship. It does not mean white queer movements helped anti-racist movements, nor that they make anti-racism a part of their queer politics, rather than leaving people of color, including queer people of color, to fight racism alone. Civil rights activism and gay rights activism could have been integrated instead of afterthoughts and occasional coalitions. But it wasn't. It was built on Hirschfeld's earlier theories and publications, rather than those he produced at the end of his life. The German gay rights movement was subsumed by Nazism. Hirschfeld's writings survived as they'd been translated into multiple languages, but the texts that made the greatest impact in the United States in post-World War II Europe were his earlier ideas about biological natural homosexuality and the concept of a sexual minority, that analogy that's like a racial minority. And the Nazi destruction of Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexological Research set European sexology back decades. What if Donald Webster Corey, author of the 1951 The Homosexual in America, had read and incorporated Hirschfeld's World Journey account instead of his earlier works? What if the NSDAP hadn't won the 1933 election? 
What if, what if, what if? How different would the American homophile movement, and Jesus, just everything, have been? And while Lee spent much of the rest of his life trying to carry on Hirschfeld's work as the older man willed it with his dying breath, Lee never had the kind of career that Hirschfeld did. But Lee's failure to become the Hirschfeld of China was not predetermined. When Hirschfeld refused to go to America and Lee chose to stay in Europe with him, that derailed Lee's studies for several years, as he was forced to struggle through an education system in which he wasn't fluent. Instead of returning to China permanently, Lee moved to the U.S. to continue his education and then lived out the rest of his life in Canada. Though Lee was introduced to the sexological community when he co-authored a paper for a major sexological conference, he was not recognized as Hirschfeld's successor. The American sexologists were informed by early Hirschfeld, not Hirschfeld-Lee or just Lee. There were very few non-white sexologists who made a name for themselves, though Lee was poised to do so. He made choices that redirected his life again and again. Though he pursued his own work in a way that would have eventually distinguished him from Hirschfeld, he did not publish any major sexological works. In fact, there's only one surviving sexological text authored by Lee. It is unpublished and was rescued from the garbage by a neighbor after Lee died in Vancouver in 1993 at the age of 81. It's the outline for a crossover text, a work of fiction blended with his 51 years of sexological research with ideas that are clearly influenced by Hirschfeld, but also diverge significantly from Hirschfeld's theories. Lee, for example, rejected the theory of the races that Hirschfeld made so central to his work. And according to Marhofer, Lee likely wrote this 16-page outline with the hope or intention that it would be the sequel to Robert Smythe Hitchens' novel, That Which is Hidden. That Which is Hidden is based on Lee's life, as is the main character of the novel. Hitchens was inspired to write it after he met Lee in a bar, and Lee told him all about his travels with Magnus Hirschfeld. The Lee character in the novel is a caricature of Chinese masculinity, that is to say, effeminate and encapsulating many of the racial tropes that white Europeans like Hirschfeld and Hitchens imagined of the Chinese people. But Lee also loved that novel and hoped to work with Hitchens on a second book, which would also convey his sexological theories to a broad reading audience. The unfinished, partially developed manuscript is all that remains of Lee's life's work. So both Hirschfeld and Lee died before their anti-racist, anti-colonial theories of homosexuality could proliferate and have an impact. And since there aren't three fates spinning, weaving, and cutting the threads of our lives and predetermining the when, how, and why we die, there can be no clearer way to emphasize that history, life, is contingent. Choices matter, and accidents and disasters and events out of human control matter. That's what's infuriating about studying the past, because it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to result in violence and racism, exclusion, pain, suffering, disenfranchisement, war, etc. Change any precondition. Say, if Hirschfeld chose to go with Lee to the U.S., you could very well change the outcome of everything. And it's scary, but sometimes preconditions are changed by things we have no control over, like meteors hitting the planet or hurricane or sudden death. 
So it's usually infuriating or terrifying, but I think when we look at historical contingency, there's also a kind of hope, a reminder that the choices we make matter, that when we vote or protest atrocities or just do the right fucking thing, it matters. So that's my TED Talk for today. Thanks for listening. That was beautiful. That totally encapsulates it. You know what? I just had a quick question, and this was something I thought of at the very beginning. It's it's not really hot here nor there, but I think it is interesting that Hirschfeld um, assumed that his protege, his student kind of helpers or whatever, would also be his lovers. And so he kind of equated um, physical intimacy with trust. I mean – Looking at it a, a, a bit more um, pessimistically, is that also a way to kind of keep their silence in an era where being an out gay man is is not okay? I mean, sure, yeah, there's certainly that element of, I mean, intimacy and trust and fear are sort of wrapped up together. And it's also, I think, because Hirschfeld, like many of the sort of elite gay men of his time period who were not out they also saw themselves as part of this like classical tradition of the pederast right like that's why he was so hurt by that uh um lecture he attended when he was a a medical student was because pederasty is this idea that it's like a mentorship and sort of um, sexual relationship that is drawn out of the tradition of the the Greeks who had these sort of age-based intergener- intergener- intergenerational relationships. Um, and my students actually got really angry about <laughs> this, this whole concept and his relationship with Lee and how is he exploiting him? Does Lee have any agency in this? And of course Lee does because it's clear that Lee could have left him at any time. And Lee makes choices because he seems to either care for Hirschfeld or respect him or want to be with him, even when it's clear that the relationship isn't necessarily uh, advancing his career in any way at all. Yeah, um, probably so hurt his it, career. Yeah, it's super complicated and certainly how how Hirschfeld understood and framed his relationships with students slash lovers and how those lovers slash mentees saw their relationships with him. Often we don't really we can't get that to that interiority necessarily, but it's yeah, it's complicated for sure. And how did um, sexologists like Hirschfeld and and even Lee, how did they kind of fight off what I'm assuming were probably pretty common um, things thrown at them of being gay? Yeah, that they just that's why, in part, everything is so secretive and why you have to have a lover who you can trust implicitly, um, because to be out would be to tank your career not just in terms of advancing the emancipationist movement, but in your, if you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, if you're a civil servant, right? Like that would be really, really bad. And that's, I mean, if we go back to the Roger Casement episode, right? Remember how he was a humanitarian hero internationally recognized. And then the British government knew that all they had to do was leak his diaries that recorded his homosexuality. And that would, make people about face and stop advocating for him for his stay of execution right that's all they had to do was float some rumors 
spread around a few pages of his his diaries and people would turn away from him and they did not everybody did obviously but the vast majority of his former supporters stopped writing letters of support awesome i mean not awesome but yeah no this is a great this is a great um a, a great way to look at contingency for sure um so of course listeners as always we invite you to follow us on facebook formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, at dig underscore history. You can join our Facebook group, the Dig History Pod Squad. If you have a comment or question or want to share some kind words with us, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love listener mail. Um, please leave us those five-star reviews. It helps us gain more listeners. If you're an educator, we've got a compendium of episodes you can use in the classroom uh, with free teaching resources, including full lesson plans. And those are all on our website at digpodcast.org. We do realize that recent changes to curriculum in states like Florida and Texas will complicate being able to use our podcast episodes in the classroom. So please reach out if there's something that we can do to be helpful to you in your classroom. You'll also find full bibliographies, the scripts for all our episodes, resources, show notes, and a link to our swag store at digpodcast.org. And most recently, you can follow us on TikTok at dig underscore history. Woot woot. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Between the four of them, they had a doctor, a lawyer, a publisher, and a formal colonel official. Oh, and a former colonial official. Sounds... Oh, <laughs> oh you have Mendel and Mandel. Which one is it? I think it's... I have no idea. Let's see what the internet thinks. Mendel. In Britain, this was exemplified in the scandal surrounding the Cleveland Street scandal. Um, in the... Delete this. Oh, God, it's too big. In his book... Oh, God, I made this title up now. Oh, my God. Is it World Travels or is it World Journey? <sighs> Books written by Hirschfeld. Don't travel with the donkeys. Not the times. World journey. Oh shit! I said it wrong. Linzer turned the other living men of the scientific humanitarian committee. Not only in respect to racial, somatic, and characterological, characterological, and writing Sappho, and character, blah, and often problematic ways. Oh, f that's not a complete sentence. No. <laughs> what an amazing setup. Thank He's you. so smart. I love it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.